Welcome back to another episode. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about eschatology. That's right, the uh, doctrine of the end times. And although there is a lot of controversy around this particular issue, we are going to answer definitively once and for all and answer the question that is on everybody's mind. What is the only thing better than two amillennials and a premillennial talking about end times? That's right. It's three amillennials and a premillennial talking about the end times. So let's go ahead and bring in our first uh, amillennial panelist. Uh, you know him. You love him. He's uh, Pastor Eric Love. Eric, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's good to uh, good to be with you. Uh, anything uh, new or exciting in, in your world as, uh, as you're doing your life in ministry? Well, uh, you know, I really just... I do the same things, most of the same things every day, but I just try and do them better uh, each day. So that's that's my goal. Yeah, well, that's a, a fairly simple approach, at least in theory, but uh, uh, an excellent thing. Probably if we all did that, uh, uh, the world would maybe be a little better place. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I know that uh, leading up to this, you shared me uh, with me some notes from a sermon that you preached on 1 Corinthians 15, and I appreciated that. I, I did read it. I don't know if we'll get into all of it, but uh, thank you for sharing that. So it helps me understand your view a little bit better. Sure. Let's go ahead and bring in our second uh, panelist for today's discussion. Again, uh, another uh, amillennial uh, uh the most optimistic millennial I know, uh, Greg Churchley. How you doing, brother? <laughs> yeah, good morning, brother. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm very well. So, uh, what about you? Anything new or exciting in in your world? Uh, man, no. My uh, my life is blessedly boring. So I'm uh, just plugging away, and I, I don't know that I can say that I'm super looking forward to this conversation. Um, no, you know, this, your, your optimism topic. is waning. <laughs> my optimism toward the conversation is waning. No, I, oh. it's gonna be a great conversation. It's just. Uh, the the divide that this one issue uh, creates in the church, I think, is it's unfortunate. But like I said, we're gonna we're gonna heal that rift. We're gonna convert a dispensational premillennialist to the truth today, and so I'm praising uh, we'll, God. We'll we'll see about that. But uh, uh, are you uh, are you in any way concerned that uh, you and I will no longer be friends after this? Joe, we have weathered the storm, and I have no doubt. And you've been wrong for years, so why would today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I see yeah, no yeah. changes really. So yeah, well, I uh, I likewise hold out some hope, although I've I've been called a lot of things, but optimistic is not one of them. But uh, I do True. hold out at least some optimism that maybe uh, you will be the one who repents and changes your mind, and we bring you back to orthodoxy. But uh, in any event, uh, let's go ahead and bring in our uh, third panelist for today, uh, making his very first appearance on the One Accord podcast. We're happy to have you here. Hopefully it won't be his last appearance. Micah Smith, how are you doing this morning, brother? I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to be here. And I, I, for one, am very excited about this conversation. Not because I, well, I hope we change Joe's mind, but uh, <laughs> but I just, uh, I like talking about it. I like talking about the fulfillment of God's promises. So I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And, um, you know, I know we don't have all of the uh, particular views necessary, uh, necessarily of the millennium uh, covered here, um, but uh, the, we do at least have the opportunity for some very interesting conversation. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know us, uh, you know, we, we aren't here necessarily to 
change each other's minds, dig in and, and do that. Hopefully we're all here to look at the scriptures and, and kind of just see where it leads. I know that Greg talked about in our last episode, and I, again, I don't expect that everybody's watched everything, but he made a statement somewhere along the lines of often when we disagree, you know, we try and give them a book, they try and give us a book, they're not excited to read our book, we're not excited to read their book. And uh, we have talked about this, Greg, I think it was maybe our very first episode, you talked about how reading uh, pre-millennial dispensationalists tends to get your blood pressure up. Uh, and so I know that uh, me reading millennials, I don't, I typically look at it. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I go, I, I honestly don't know how anybody could believe this. I don't, I don't get it. But here I am sitting with you guys uh, who I, I know and, and love and I'm looking at your faces and I know that you are uh, serious, committed brothers. And, and yet you do believe this, uh, what I would sometimes characterize as a borderline silly position. Of course, you would say that about mine. And so we all say that in love towards each other. And uh, I'm interested to see where the conversation goes, because at least with each other, we can have some back and forth and, and have some real conversation, um, which we're not afforded with a book. You know, it's hard to it's hard to interact with the author in that way. It's a very one sided conversation. So, uh, again, like you guys, I am. Uh, you know, I know that this can be controversial, but that's the point of a show like this. We, can we have the hard conversations, even disagreeing, although maybe we'll agree at the end, but it's likely we'll still all uh, kind of disagree at this point. Uh, but can we do so in a way that uh, maintains that Christian love? I, I think we can. So, Micah, since you're uh, the newest panelist, um, again, I've had the good fortune of getting to know you for uh, several years. You and I have uh, studied the Bible together. We've done some witnessing together. Um, these guys don't know you, and, and certainly anybody who's watching our show, that this is your first appearance on here. So why don't you take a, a few moments and just kind of let us know a little bit about you, your theological background, and, and who you are as a person. Um, what, what would you like to share with, uh, uh, our, again, our other panelists and anybody else who might be watching today? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in uh, Adrian, Michigan. Uh, I've lived in Michigan my whole life, aside from four years where we were, uh, I was in the military, so we uh, were stationed down in Georgia, but immediately moved back up to Michigan. Uh, as far as my, my own conversion to Christ, I was uh, pretty radically saved at 15 or 16 years old in my starting to get into the, the sort of middle of my high school years. Uh, the Lord opened my eyes and uh, made me see my need for Christ. I'd heard the gospel my whole life, but um, honestly, I was, uh, I was hostile to God and uh, the Lord changed my heart almost in an instant. I heard the gospel like I'd never heard it before and I trusted Christ. So the Lord graciously saved me. And soon after that, I sort of uh, <clears throat> began to feel this uh, this desire uh, to preach the gospel to others, whether it was in an evangelistic context or, uh, you know, looking forward one day to something like pastoral ministry or something like that. Um, so that's when I sort of first felt the, the tug on my heart from the Holy Spirit to uh, to get into some sort of gospel ministry. Uh, right now, I'm a right now I'm a pastoral intern at the Reformed Baptist Church of Lunaway. Uh, so I'm uh, serving in that context. I'm getting the opportunity to to uh, preach the word to our church pretty much every other week, and that's been a really real uh, blessing from the Lord on my life. He's just uh, He's inflamed and encouraged the the desire to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry through the through pastoral service uh, through what I'm doing right now with our church. Uh, as far as my theological background, I grew up in a sort of the sort of non-denominational Bible church world, uh, but it was 
touching our conversation today, I grew up in sort of a, uh, a broadly Calvinistic and dispensational uh, system of doctrine. Uh, and that's what I would have, that's what I would have held to up until probably the second year that I was in the military. Uh, and actually, Joe doesn't know this. Uh, so you're hearing it, you're hearing it here first. Uh, but Joe, we got, the, we got the scoop. Yeah, You do, you do. Uh, Joe is the one who converted me to amillennialism. Uh-oh. <laughs> the plot thickens. It, yeah. I, I've never told Joe this before, uh, but I wanted to drop it on him right here. <laughs> That's good. And then hopefully I will have the dubious distinction of being the one who deconverted you from amillennialism. <laughs> uh, but what we were, you guys were talking about last week so resonated with me, reading large portions of scripture. Joe's the first person that encouraged me to read large, large chunks of scripture. And I said, I, I think like the conversation went something like, well, I don't know if 40 chapters a day is doable for me, uh, but I'll do 10. And then I started to do that. And when I started to do that, at first I was reading through the Old Testament and I was like being confirmed in what I'd already thought. I was, you know, confirmed and sort of, we'll define what this means later, but the sort of dispensational eschatology. Uh, these promises to Israel are clearly to Israel. How could anyone ever think otherwise? I'm reading large portions of these promises in the Old Testament. There's no way these could be fulfilled to the, you know, in Christ and the church. There's, there's no can way. I, can I say amen? Amen and amen. <laughs> I knew, I knew you'd feel like that so far. However, <laughs> stick, stick with you though. Yeah. 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 Uh, however, I got to the New Testament and I read it once and I was like, okay, there are some passages I struggle with here from that perspective. And then I read through the Old Testament and New Testament again. And I was like, okay, there's more passages that I struggle with because I'm starting to get the whole plot. I'm starting to see how all these pieces are fitting together. I'm getting the broad narrative of what God has done in redemptive history and how he's fulfilling his promises in Christ. And I'm seeing the New Testament apostles prophets, the Lord Jesus himself, I'm seeing them quote and allude to the Old Testament in ways where I would have said this has to have a fulfillment in the future Jewish geopolitical ethnic kingdom of Israel in the 1,000-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. I would have said that about those Old Testament passages, but I see them being alluded to Regarding the first coming of Christ, the resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, and in the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church now. So the subjects of these promises, I was realizing as I was reading through Old Testament and New, seem to be not Gentile apart from Jew, and not Jew apart from Gentile, but the church of Jesus Christ as the one people of God, the what I would what I would call the Israel of God, um, Amen. And I know that, <laughs> and I know that uh, there, like I would have had serious qualms with that uh, that position back in you know my dispensational days because I would I would have said, well, how can God fulfill His promises in some way that was other than obvious to those who first received them? But it was ultimately Scripture that bound my conscience with it, like. Um, I have to I have to read the Old Testament, not only the, the New Testament in light of the old, but the Old Testament in light of the new, too. So that was sort of my journey 
uh, out of that. And regarding sort of your uh, your guys' conversation about labels, uh, so I would still be a, uh, I, like I said, obviously I go to Reformed Baptist Church. We're members of Reformed Baptist Church. So I am from the Reformed perspective. I am a, uh, I am a Calvinist. Now, you, you guys had the conversation where you're, where you talked about labels and how they can be helpful or unhelpful. I'm actually maybe a little bit more optimistic about labels. Um, I think it, it might be gracious with those listening to me to say, you can put me under this broad umbrella. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of tell you what I think through this, through this label. And then if we come to something that I disagree with, you know, I, we can talk about that then. But like, if you want a sort of a broad framework for understanding me as I'm talking to you, uh, I would be in the Calvinistic camp. Not because I have any loyalty to John Calvin. That would be sinful. <laughs> Not because I have any personal loyalty to any teacher. Uh, but that would be, as Greg said, my hermeneutic or, or the, the position that I arrive at from scripture. So uh, I would be now with where I'm at a uh, reformed or Calvinistic amillennialist with regard to both soteriology and eschatology. Well, thank you for those clarifications. And yeah, I, I think even though there might be a little bit of pushback, we all, we all agree on that. Uh, the shorthand benefits of labels, uh, the, the, the problems that can occur is when we go too far and then just pigeonhole people into thinking, well, if you've, if you've taken this, you must be this. Um, and, you know, at least uh, when we have the opportunity to have conversation, we can clarify our positions and, and that's a good thing. So, um, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that is quite a bombshell. I did not know that. Uh, you're right. <laughs> uh, that was surprising. Um, but I am, you know, delighted to know that uh, uh, the, the overall intent of why I shared that is because I do love for people to read bigger sections of scripture. And I think, you know, over time, uh, as our positions change, uh, hopefully we come to more and more unity. Um, and so uh, that's a cool thing. Thank you also for your military service. I know you mentioned that and um, uh, praise God for that. I, I know that that's a, a big sacrifice. Um, Greg mentioned that he's an almost Reformed Baptist. You are a Reformed Baptist. So can I put you on the spot? I mean, impassibility, yes or no? Uh, impassibility, yes. Throwing Greg out of the camp, no. Okay. Uh, what about the second issue uh, about the Pope? You know, Antichrist, not Antichrist? I, you could pass uh, on that one, I guess. And, and Antichrist. Okay. All right. Um, so so full-blown full uh, Reformed Baptist. So there, there we go. Um, yeah. well, Greg, were you about to say something? Oh, it's, yeah, I, I for sure. And Antichrist. I just can't name him as the big A or the office. Again, yeah, it sure. very well could be true at the end of the day. I just can't can't include that in the confession. Like contextually speaking, in the, as the confession was if you're sort of familiar with how it's put together, uh, that's an ecclesiastical designation, even within the confession, it's not necessarily a geopolitical one. So there are differences in, in even in terms of how people interpret the, what the author's intent was in the confession, whether they were trying to call him, you know, the final <laughs> antichrist yeah. or whether they were just saying the position that he plays in relationship to Christ's church as he's the antichrist. Uh, now, I don't know what's right. I don't know what kind of interpretation is right, but I'm also not going to throw Greg out of out of the camp. <laughs> I'm not one of those people that's interested in sort of uh, gatekeeping 
yeah. in the Reformed yeah. world. Uh, well, that's, that's I'm, I'm happy to call Greg a Reformed Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to call Greg a brother. That's what I'll call Greg. But, uh, well, I, I don't mean to digress us. Um, and, and maybe someday we can uh, bring you back on and you can be the odd man out from passability because we at least alluded to it. We didn't really uh, fully dig into it, but uh, I would maybe someday love to hear how it is that you come to that position. But, um, well, thanks for sharing that. And, and as we get into this particular uh discussion uh, about amillennialism, uh, premillennialism, eschatology in general. Um, it is interesting to note that, that you came to your position basically by following a method that I would prescribe, uh, a method that as I followed, I came to a very different conclusion. And so this really gets to the heart of something that, Greg, you mentioned in our last episode of, of um, what, what many people lack. Um, I don't know that you lack this, Micah, so I'm not, I'm not saying this for you. I'm just saying, but I agree, many people do lack a consistent hermeneutic. Um, and talking about the lens that we bring to scripture, um, anybody that would take that method of reading the Bible, whether it's once or many times, whether it's reading small, you know, small sections or large sections, um, if we lack a consistent hermeneutic, we'll kind of be all over the place. If we have a consistent hermeneutic, but we're not um, upfront about what that is, we still might come to very, very different conclusions, even as we're reading the same source material, because uh, how do we handle the text that we, that we deal with? And so, um, before we dive into the actual topic at hand, I at least want to be clear about the hermeneutic that I have. Uh, I believe that I'm consistent in it, although I'm open to you guys exposing and saying, hey, Joe, I don't think you are being consistent um, you know, with, with that. And, and hopefully you guys are open to me trying to point that out to you if I think that that's the case for you. But um, the hermeneutic that I come from, I've heard called uh, a normal hermeneutic, which is probably... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> offensive terminology, right? Because that is anybody's like, oh, to, I guess to, uh, all the abnormal, abnormal, right? I know. Um, <laughs> of course, it is. So, as so opposed a, to weird hermeneutics, right? Yeah. So, a normal hermeneutic isn't as helpful, but there are three other terms that typically go into this. That it is a a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. So, um, I do think that uh, that is the best way to read scripture. That, um, and again, literal doesn't mean that you take every metaphor literally. It takes it, it takes into account the grammatical aspects of it that, um, you know, uh, metaphors are metaphors, similes are similes, uh, parables are parables. Uh, and, and it takes into the, the account the historical situation as well, that a text can never mean what it never meant, that we, we do need to do some, um, Greg, you said very well last time, um, some of the work that we have to do is trying to understand context that they just knew right away. They, they received those letters. They had a relationship. These were real people. Now we're coming along almost two millennia later and, and we're, we're reading these in the case of the new Testament, even longer with the old Testament. And so how do we understand these documents? Um, but a, a literal, uh, grammatical historical approach is the hermeneutic that I attempt to apply consistently. Is that the hermeneutic that you guys use or is there something that is maybe more, um, how would you describe you know, yeah, your hermeneutic. I would definitely affirm that, but um, as we all know, um, what a grammatical, literal, um, <laughs> historical uh, hermeneutic looks like when you're approaching the Gospels or when you're approaching a historical text or when you're approaching poetry looks different. It, 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 it takes on a different form or has a different expression when you're getting to apocalyptic literature. Um, so um, you don't read the Gospels, or you shouldn't read the Gospels the same way you read the book of Revelation or, or Old Testament prophecy. So that umbrella that you laid out, Joe, gets divided, and, and this is where we start to fall in different camps. Because I think my guess is other two brothers here would agree. Yes, absolutely that approach. 
Um, but we have a subcategory when it comes to apocalyptic literature. And unless I'm wrong, you would fall into the hermeneutical camp that gets labeled as futurist. Normally speaking, unless you disagree uh, you know, strenuously, the dispensational premillennialists fall into a futurist camp where you are looking for all those things to be laid out and fulfilled at some future date in detail. And um, the amillennialists, we would fall into what's called the idealist camp, that, that, that those images are presenting ideas that are supposed to be understood with reference to the Old Testament um, and the imagery presented there. Um, and now what gets very, very frustrating is, um, generally speaking, dispensational premillennialism is relatively new to the church. It, it didn't come to its full expression as you see it now until about 200 years ago. And you hear charges from that camp towards the other camps. Oh, you aren't reading it literally. And I go, man, you're the camp that says that, that locusts are really Apache helicopters. And like, <laughs> oh, don't tell me that I'm not reading literally when you're talking about, not you, Joe, but your camp is. Yeah, I, I don't, about, I don't hold that but, view, by the way. Just, well, so, just that so is the view coming out of your camp. So the, the water is poisoned a little there. So, um, yeah, and, well, and then, so again, they, they don't speak for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God, praise God. Um, yeah. And so one point I wanted to make is as we talked about, you know, this, uh, the amillennial position and maybe even the idealist hermeneutic being silly or strange, um, or especially not holding to a literal interpretation of the text, please remember that, that this eschatological position was the position generally held by men like Luther and Calvin and the reformers. And now I don't say that to appeal to authority. I say it because as your as your camp charges some of us with heresy because we hold this position, man, you're casting an awfully broad net that that perhaps you ought to slow down because I don't think we want to say we don't want to lump Luther and Calvin in with with heretics. Um, well, as I, if they I do committed to a to a literal sure. interpretation. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I would say, and it, it's funny how, you know, when we, when we frame the uh, discussion, we do, we tend to use terms that always uh, um, view our, you know, paint our position better, right? Um, hence even a normal hermeneutic, right? I mean, because then that says, well, anybody who doesn't hold this is abnormal by, by default. And so, you know, the, the idea that you say of, of idealist, um, I do know that the premillennials would say, well, that actually you're spiritualizing the text, you're allegorizing the text, you're taking things that historically we would all agree is not happening, but okay, there's some ideal that we're striving for. And in some sense, yes, okay, I'm a futurist. Well, that ideal that we're striving for, I think you guys would all agree, we've never hit here. And so if we are striving for it, if we're going to hit it, it is still future because the lion laying down with the lamb and, and all the nations, uh, you know, hammering their, their uh, swords into plowshares. There is no time in history where this is actually you know, even if it's idealistic, um, we are still hoping that things will get better as the future moves along. And so maybe it's tomorrow, uh, maybe it's a hundred years from now, but there is still some futuristic elements, uh, to that, uh, as I, as I would say. And I, I do want to mention at least the historical thing. I, I well, go, go ahead. I, I got a historical oh, point, but it looks like you had something to, to add. Oh, I, I was just gonna say, I, I don't think we should interpret idealistic meaning, um, interpreting as obtaining some future uh idealistic point basically it's communicating ideas it's communicating 
through symbology. Um, so, so that th there's two ways you could use idealistic, and I think you, you may be using it in the way it's not intended. That's that's fair, um, and and I appreciate the clarification. Um, uh, you know, it seemed like. Well, in any event, we'll, we'll get into that uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, historically speaking, um, I, I've heard that charge that, you know, premillennial dispensationalism is relatively new. Um, but if we go back actually all the way, um, they, we weren't called premillennials, you know, back then. The, the term was Kiliast, but actually the, the, the earliest church for the first 200 years, um, everybody held to a premillennial view. And so there is a difference between historic premillennialism and, 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 premillennial dispensationalism. That's largely about the timing of whether or not, it's not about a future millennium, it's whether uh, there's a rapture and, a, and then a seven-year intervening period before the uh, before the millennium comes. Um, but Kiliast or millenarians um, really presided all the way uh, in the first 200 years uh, after the apostolic period, really up until the, the, the Edict of Milan and, and, and when uh, Constantine um, basically made it legal in the state-sponsored religion. And I believe that that then caused a, a change that anybody who went from being severely persecuted like they were for two, two centuries almost um, to now seeing the government of the Roman Empire, which they viewed as the whole world um, becoming Christian, they thought that that was the realized eschatology and they began spiritualizing many of the, the promises that were there. And just like I mentioned about Luther, I'm so thankful for so many of the things that he did, but I, I think all of us would agree that Luther got some things wrong about communion, for example, in some cases, the, the Reformation just didn't go far enough. And so while I would agree that John Calvin and Luther and, and all the reformers definitely did hold to this amillennial view, um, I think historically that's a mistake. But uh, again, I, I Augustine, um, right? This, this does go, I mean, that's where it came from. Yeah. 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 Well, sure. Maybe uh, just, just a, maybe just a little bit of pushback on that. Um, you had said that the, the premillennial view was, was, uh, Basically, the was it the only view you said that was that existed for the first two hundred years of, of uh, church history? Because I, I was I had studied um, kind of the history of this a while back, and uh, from from what I had read, the amillennial view and premillennial view both existed in the first century. Uh, so the amillennial view was was not something that that was embraced you know, or formulated much later on. It was something that existed in, in, in some form uh, along with premillennialism in the first century. So it's, I, I, I'm not sure if that's what you meant, if you meant premillennialism that's, was I, the I'm, only thing that existed sure. or, and, or not. And as I hope to show, Paul was a, uh, a uh, millennialist. So yeah. well, and, and the early church, and not, not only Paul, but the early church actually held amillennial uh, views as well. Well, yeah, early, again, so early I, church is, is a, a definitely a broad uh, category. And so, Mike, I'll let you answer. He, he's asking me. Let me just answer and then I'll good, give it to oh, you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I would be curious to see, you know, some quotes maybe of some some of the, the early church fathers that held to this amillennial view. Um, I know that I have mentioned that I like Norman Geisler's uh, systematic theology. He has several quotes from early church fathers. Um, there's one that I've heard, um, you know, thrown around from others as well. Um, in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, um, there is a... a, a a statement that he makes that um, he actually says all Orthodox Christians are all right-minded Christians. And he talks about this, this Kielist, uh, Kielist view or, or prima, uh, the millenarian view. Um, and so I don't know of any people who are really holding to an amillennial view until uh, 
closer to the, the year 300, which again, for us, from, from our perspective, is really old, um, but 200 years is a long time. And so uh, historically speaking, I, I do think that pre, uh, the premillennial view actually predates the amillennial view, which um, again, I, historically speaking, that doesn't prove that either is correct, but um, that's just to clarify you know, my point. My, Michael, what were you going to say? So so from, what, from my personal study of church history, it does seem to me that Kiliasm, millenarianism, or this expectation of a future thousand-year reign of Christ in a literal uh, kingdom uh, was the dominant view. Uh, but I've seen dissenting voices as well. You can read quotes from before before 300 of people sort of taking shots at the idea that there's going to be this future kingdom. So like, even if we do say it's dominant – and it's what most of the people that we know of, so like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, people like that, uh, if we say, even if we say it's dominant and it's held to by some of the most popular apologists that we read in the first century, we have to understand that the first, <laughs> the, the, church, the church in the first couple centuries is incredibly broad mm. and it's way more uh, variated in its theological positions than any of us would like to admit. Yeah. Um, so, so I have, I have read quotes from people like from people within that same time frame attacking millenarianism or Kiliasm. So we know that not everybody held to it. Sure. It's just some of the most popular people that we, that we read today certainly yeah. held to it. And regarding Greg's point about idealism, uh, it's important that we distinguish that, uh, that interpretive position from the liberal form of idealism, because there is a liberal form of idealism that says, you know, none of these things really have concrete fulfillments. It's just ideas. It's just pictures. It's just, you know, sort of almost wishful thinking, like, like in some general undefined way, Jesus is victorious, whatever you'd want to take that to mean. That's not what uh, Greg means by idealism. It's not what I mean. I like to clarify it by saying redemptive historical idealism. Hmm. These things have concrete fulfillments. Christ really is victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And uh, the the book of Revelation or in the other apocalyptic literature in scripture, I do think that they're primarily picture books or communicating ideas, uh, but they're doing it in ways that do have some concrete fulfillment. Sure. And so, I, you know, I think ultimately th this is why it's good to be able to discuss the labels, because at the heart of it, I agree. And we are looking for the fulfillment of these things. We all at the heart of it, we agree that scripture is true. We agree that what God has told us is right. Uh, we agree that there is a fulfillment of these things. It's just the question of how is that working itself out? And of course, yeah, I wouldn't go so strong as to ever think that there was a unanimous position. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a, a Roman Catholic anymore. They always used to say, well, the, 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 you know, the, the unanimous consent of the fathers. I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Who's ever had unanimous consent? Um, in fact, Peter talked about that. And so, um, you know, the reality is, is that people were going to come and they were going to ask, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, you know, uh, and, and so you think about the early church um, trying to walk by faith, not by sight. You know, Greg, I disagree with you. I think Paul was a premillennial, uh, pre, you know, premillennial. I think Jesus was as well. So as they talk about these things, um, the uh, then you get this persecution that comes and people think they're in the end times. And, you know, it seems like every generation of Christians has always thought we're in the end times. We're always looking at these things and, and saying, oh, this is it. This is it. This is the end. This is the end. Um, and some people would have been asking, uh, have his promises 
have they failed? You know, where is this victory that we're talking about? Um, because, uh, I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, now we live in an age where people think that if Starbucks doesn't put a Christmas tree on their, on their coffee cup around Christmas time, that that's persecution. Um, that's not persecution, right? What these guys were dealing with in, in Rome, uh, was, was real persecution. Um, and our other brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere around the world currently, are dealing with real persecution. It's hard to be a Christian in, in places like China, Russia, Afghanistan, Iran, um, and yet the church is going forth. And so, you know, my position, I look for a, a future fulfillment of these things, but I see this beautiful, glorious victory of God uh, in, in Christ's kingdom reigning in the midst of his enemies as people believe the gospel and, and come in. So in any event, um, I, I want to turn it over to Micah, unless there's any other comments about um, uh, hermeneutic. Just to be clear, I think that we all you know, we, we're looking for the fulfillment of these things, trying to figure out how that is. I, for the most part, reject spiritualized or allegorical approaches. Um, I don't think that apocalyptic literature is allegory. I think that it is uh, a genre of scripture that's telling us real truth that we can understand. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's disagreements even amongst, uh, you know, sober-minded, you know, Christian brothers. Um, and that's what I view you guys as. And that's kind of how I, you know, all kidding aside, I view this as we, we are talking about difficult things, dealing about the doctrine of the future. Um, you know, Christ was often frustrated, it seemed. Like, have you not read? Do you not know? Why you, you, you foolish men, it's slow of heart to believe all that the prophets said. It's so clear. And then we can look back and, and we see how Christ fulfilled the first coming. Go, ah, it is clear. But I don't know that we would have got it then. And now we're talking about this, you know, things pertaining to the second coming. And so it's good to dig into these things. It's good not to, you know, point fingers and fight, but to hear each other out. And so unless you guys have any other hermeneutic um, statements to make, I'd like to turn it over to Micah to have him kind of lay out a fuller case. Can I real quick? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get to chime in just yet, but uh, um, as far as hermeneutic goes, I think one of my issues with premillennialism and, and Greg and Micah had already really kind of talked about this, but I'll just add a little bit to it. Um, premillennialism is at least somewhat based on a literal interpretation of Revelation 20. Mm-hmm. And I think this this hermeneutic is problematic because Revelation, of course, as everybody knows, contains highly symbolic language. Uh, in other words, so rather than using clear passages outside of Revelation to interpret the obscure passages in Revelation, um, it seems like premillennialists use the obscure passages to interpret the clear passages. I think that's that's one of the issues I have with premillennialism. I think it's it's kind of ironic because when we're looking at the book of Revelation, several times, uh, the first chapter, the last, I think the last chapter, uh, the book says, Jesus says, these things are going to happen soon. And he said that uh, to seven churches that were that existed in the first century in Asia Minor. And that de- those details are just completely dismissed. And uh, and I, and the, the irony of it is they take the symbolic stuff literally, but they don't take the literal uh, language literally. Uh, soon means something other than soon. It, it has to mean, you know, thousands of years into the future. So I, I have those issues um, with with the, the interpretation of Revelation. You know, Revelation 18 talks about Babylon the Great was responsible for killing the apostles and prophets, which implies that Revelation, uh, Babylon the Great in Revelation 18, existed during the time of the apostles and, and prophets. Uh, it, there's, you know, the, the temple is mentioned in Revelation 11, and uh that could be interpreted in a couple different ways, but one I think 
fair interpretation is that, is that that's talking about the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. So there's a whole, there's all these uh, clues, all these details um, that I think are, are overlooked. And, and I think uh, if we're looking at revelation, we need to, we need to make sure that we're interpreting clear passages. Uh, the beginning passages would talk about the timing and um, not interpreting uh, those any other way. So that, that's just what I would say. Yeah. yeah no, that's, I, and I that's would agree fair. with Eric. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into this, but for example, to piggyback on what Eric had just said, um, I've heard uh, dispensational premillennialists look at Revelation chapter seven, I believe, where it talks about, you know, this, you know, these are the saints that come out of the great tribulation. Um, that's the only place in scripture where we get the words, the great tribulation. And they say, oh, no, that's not the great tribulation. Um, the the hour of testing um, in Revelation 3, that's the great tribulation. I go, wait, wait, wait. You're, you're the ones telling me I'm not interpreting literally. And this says the great, excuse me, the tribulation, the great in the Greek. Um, and I go, let's be, let's at least be consistent and fair. My again, my goal here is not to speak for all premillennial dispensationalists. Um, I do agree that we should uh, in, interpret um, less clear passages in light of more clear passages, um, by and large, as a, as a general thing. But the interesting thing to me, Eric, as I as I hear you um, describe, I think that you know you're making what you seem to think are very clear conclusions from this apocalyptic literature. And so I view Revelation 20 as another place where we can have a clear idea of what that is. And, and I would say, oh, I'm not, I'm not mishandling this text. In fact, um, I think that there are many ways that as the final book, that this, as, as we're getting progressive revelation, that this helps clarify when rightly understood uh, much of the timing of these other issues. And regarding soon, you're right. If I say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm coming home soon to my wife, she doesn't expect me to come home in a month. That's, that's true. Um, but when the final prophet of the Old Testament says, uh, behold, I'm coming soon, and then we have 400 years before he comes, uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that biblically speaking, God uses words in ways that, um, especially speaking about the doctrine of the future, that sometimes does allow for large periods of time, because we, I think, would all agree that Malachi was talking about the coming of John the Baptist and, and the forerunner of the, the, the incarnation of Christ. And so when he says, behold, I'm, I'm coming soon, uh, 400 years uh, is, is the, the, the time frame that he uses for that. And so I don't think that I'm, you know, uh, going spiritually or, or, or um, allegorically or ignoring, uh, I think that I'm trying to take those in light of, of other, in light of other passages and understanding the old Testament, uh, foundation that when God says soon, um, he, he doesn't mean exactly the same thing as, as I would mean soon. But, uh, but, if when, I'm talk but in revelation, when he's telling, when he's saying soon to the seven churches in Asia minor, and he's not, and he's talking about these events, these things are going to happen soon. Um, and he's talking to, to seven churches in history and he's directing the comment at them i think that re that requires us to uh uh to take soon in a, in a lot more literal um sense well we can, I, we can I, talk uh, more. we'll talk more about sure that. no i i hear that uh, um micah why don't we uh uh turn it over to you it sounds like someone's trying to come uh, come down through your roof over there Sorry, I have a toddler in the house, and she's banging on the floor with something, apparently. <laughs> Occupational hazard of being a parent, I suppose. So, uh, um, well, why don't you uh, take a, a little bit of time to kind of uh, outline, uh, outline some of, you know, your specific issues as you traveled, you know, out of uh, uh, 
premillennial dispensationalism into amillennialism. And, and as you mentioned, some of the imagery, particularly how it's used in the New Testament, um, the, the floor is yours to kind of set the table for us uh, uh, moving forward here. So I want to, out of an abundance of fairness to Joe and to others in the dispensational premillennial camp, there is a vast difference between pop dispensationalism that you might find in the Left Behinds, you know, Left Behind movies or books. Yeah, I do not get my theology from uh, the Left Behinds. <laughs> there's, there's a, or Hal Lindsey, uh, or uh, who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. You know, uh, there's a vast difference between dispensationalism as it exists uh with people that are they're really serious about scripture and then people that are trying to make movies uh so just to sort of point that out there so like the apache helicopter thing like i think that's more of a product of pop dispensationalism than it is uh the people that like the serious dispensationalists that i would read to sort of challenge my own view um but my journey out of dispensationalism, I alluded to it a little bit before, but I think d defining a little bit about what characterized my dispensationalism is important because dispensationalism and dispensationalists, even some of the serious ones that I mentioned, all have different definitions of it and different sort of like this is the minimum bar that defines dispensationalism. There's some that are more loose and there's some that are more stringent. There's different camps within the dispensational school. Uh, but so I'll give you the sort of the three elements that distinguished my dispensationalism uh, just to, as a personal testimony of what I came out from, because I don't want to just assume that what characterized mine is this everything or is all the same stuff that characterizes Joe's or someone else's because it's, there's so much argument about what is how you actually define it. My dispensationalism was characterized by, like Joe said, a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic that gave rise to a particular view of redemptive history. This is how we see the promises of God being knit together uh, to Israel, uh, to David, right? There's going to be a, a king that reigns on the throne of David from Jerusalem in this ethnic geopolitical kingdom of Israel. Um, there's a distinction between Israel and the church because these promises were made to Israel, and that's grounded in the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. These church, these promises can't be fulfilled in the church, or at least so I believed, uh, because that would go against the literal sense of what these original promises were saying. So a particular view of redemptive history grounded in the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic that gives rise to a particular eschatology or a particular view of the future, right? Uh, you see, in some, in some ways, what I believed was not one people of God, but two peoples of God. Because the whatever the church is, it isn't what was being promised to Israel. Whatever the church is, it isn't you know, the inheritor, the, the, they, we aren't, it isn't the, the party that inherits the promises to David or the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would have, that's what would have described me uh, because these promises weren't made to the church. They were made to Israel. So that's the redemptive historical situation. And then because you see redemptive history like that, grounded in that hermeneutic, now you have to make certain claims about the future. There has to be a literal thousand earthly thousand year earthly kingdom 
in Jerusalem where Christ is reigning from the throne of David because David has promised a king to sit on his throne. And that has to be on the earth. It can't be from heaven. Uh, or so I believed. And maybe Joe would disagree with that. Maybe Joe would nuance that a little bit. But I, I would. Uh, I won't do so now. But uh, but yeah, that is. I wouldn't articulate it that way. So I, I appreciate you clarifying that. You know, um, you, your your starting point back then and, and my current position are not the same. Um, so I would have. I would have some nuanced disagreement with that. Okay, and and then you know because the church and Israel are not the same party because their promises are not the same to them. Uh, the sort of time of Jacob's trouble or what we would call the seven year tribulation or the great tribulation, that seven year period of time where dispensationalists largely agree, largely believe that the church is taken out because this isn't, this isn't for the church. Um, this isn't, this is God intending to deal with Israel on a separate program than he's dealing with the church. He's bringing Israel back to himself during that seven year tribulation where his wrath poured out on the earth the reign of the Antichrist, persecution is all made to eventuate the Jews coming back to coming to Christ, coming to their Messiah. Um, and then when that happens, Jesus comes, Armageddon, thousand year reign instituted, reigns from the throne of David. Uh, and then that's important note, that's before the eschaton. That's before the general resurrection of the dead, the final judgment and everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so that's sort of what I, I came from. But the problem that I kept running into, and this is why I want to focus on sort of the, the hermeneutical and the redemptive historical aspects of that, that uh, system, because like I said, as I was reading the Old Testament, I was being confirmed in it. I was saying, yeah, there, there, this is obvious. There's no way this could be in, fulfilled in any other way. But then, I don't know, if you guys have your Bibles with you, just I want to give you an example. Just to turn to Matthew, the opening chapters of Matthew. Because the New Testament authors used the Old Testament in ways that I found shocking and somewhat offensive. <laughs> like... They at the at, and that's just me being brutally honest. At the time, I'm like, I don't know how to deal with how they're using the Old Testament, but whatever it is, it doesn't seem right. Uh, so, for instance, Matthew chapter two, verse fifteen. This is uh, after the Virgin, or this is uh, this is when this is regarding the the flight into Egypt of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, and Matthew chapter two, verse fifteen says, uh, or starting in verse 14, he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the, by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But here's the problem. If you go back into the Old Testament and you read in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, that's not a future prophetic text, or it doesn't seem like that. So my, if when, but when I was reading Hosea 11.1, 1, my literal grammatical historical hermeneutic would have been telling me this is about the past. He, God is talking about his faithfulness in bringing Israel out of Egypt and how they have to be loyal to him because of his saving action in that nation. But Matthew quotes it as a future prophecy. So how in the world does that fit together? That's what I'm talking about with the New Testament use of the old. So that clued me in. There must be more to a biblical hermeneutic than just maybe what the 
author or the audience at the time originally anticipated. Um, so that was sort of one of the first, one of the first dominoes and something similar to it was in the same, same sort of section of scripture, met, scripture, Matthew chapter three, verse three, Matthew chapter three, verse three, talking about John the Baptist in the minute, the beginning of his ministry, uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Well, here's the issue. That is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And it's not obvious from the context in Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, that this is about some far off in the future fulfillment of this coming of this literal prophet. It seems that Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 is about the children of Israel who were then in exile in Babylon coming out of exile and back into the promised land. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The same, this, this sort of the same uh, series of prophecies that talks about Cyrus and Cyrus's decree to let the children of Israel go out of Babylon or out of uh, their land of their exile and back into the land. So like, when I was reading these things, it wasn't obvious to me that the Old Testament was, the New Testament authors were interpreting the Old Testament in the way that I was demanding that we interpret it. Um, and there were, there were other texts, there are other texts as well, but that was sort of the first thing that challenged my hermeneutic. Um, so basically the, the conclusion that I came to is that the prophecies uttered in the Old Testament and their fulfillments can be more than literal and are often typological. In other words, not only were the words and the specific utterances of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, and their predictions for the future, not only were, the, were those prophetic, but in some sense, Israel itself and its history in coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and coming into the into rest in the promised land. In some sense, David himself uh, in the position of reigning over God's people and the covenant made with him. Not only were the specific utterances prophetic, but these these parties, Israel, David, uh, some of the prophets, in some sense, they were typological of Christ. The events that happened in their history were foreshadowing what the work of the ultimate antitype would be. And, and basically, there's a typological rhythm to Scripture, which is why it's not surprising that the first few chapters of Matthew basically mirror the history of Israel. The, the first few chapters of Matthew... Uh, they talk about them being driven into the wilderness or driven into Egypt by a king that wants blood. And then they come back out of, out of Egypt. I called my son and the beginning of Jesus's. And so obviously that, that mirrors something of Israel's history out of Egypt. I called my son is originally about Israel here. It's being applied to Jesus. Uh, and then John the Baptist preparing the way, um, he, Jesus, is baptized by John the Baptist, anointed, the Holy Spirit descends on him. And as he comes out of the water, the, the very next thing 
was him being driven into the wilderness to be tested. Well, what was the very next thing that Israel did after they came out of the water, after they came through the waters of the Red Sea? Well, they had to sojourn in the wilderness. They were tested in the wilderness, as we know from the book of Hebrews. And that harkens back to Adam. <laughs> that harkens back to Adam's testing by Satan. So it's like you, I began to get this picture of Adam, Israel, Christ. Like there's these typological institutions, typological events, typological individuals and people groups that are even the history of what God is doing in these peoples is in some way promising the ultimate fulfillment in the person of Christ. Um, but if you're going to say that, then in some way you have to say, okay, maybe the promises that God gives to Israel can have an eschatological sort of escalation and be fulfilled in some sense, or inaugurated in the first coming of Christ and be fulfilled in the relationship uh, between Christ and his church. Because these were things that were about Israel, but here they're being applied to Jesus himself. Um, so that's kind of, that was kind of the, the line of thinking that moved me away from viewing viewing the promises to Israel as they have to have a future, concrete, literal fulfillment. Because I was seeing promises and even just Old Testament texts, uh, I was seeing them be fulfilled in surprising ways that didn't seem to be about specifically ethnic Israel. Um, so, yeah, and then and then specifically, I don't, I'm just going to throw mention another text, and we don't have time to get into all the texts today. But just to sort of give an example of that, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Peter's preaching at Pentecost is teeming with the Old Testament promises of God that I would have, in my dispensational days, considered to necessitate a sort of future geopolitical ethnic Israel fulfillment because of how they were uttered in the Old Testament. But uh, I think that Peter sees them as inaugurated now in the present resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ as the Davidic king. I would have, in my dispensational days, said, well, no, the reign from David's throne has to be in the future. There's no sense, I would have said, that there's no, there's no way that Christ can be reigning from David's throne now. But as Peter's preaching, I'm just going to start reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, but his, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So this is promises to David context. 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So that shattered the paradigm for me, that the promises to David have to have a future earthly fulfillment in a literal 1,000-year kingdom. According to Peter, it seems that Christ is on David's throne now. There's a fulfillment to the promises of Israel, to the Davidic covenant, now in the enthronement of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He reigns over his enemies now. Um, and then what he keeps saying, though, go, went, it, it sort of pressed even further into my presuppositions and challenged them. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David himself did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then he goes on to say in verse 39, after they say, what shall we do to be saved? And he, and he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far, far off whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What is he talking about here, the promise? Well, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. But if you read those old, same Old Testament texts that he's alluding to, you begin to see that the, the coming of the Spirit, even within Old Testament prophecy, is eschatological. The coming of the Spirit, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, has to do with the resurrection and restoration of Israel as a nation. But here... The coming of the Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off. In other words, Gentiles. So it seems to me that at this founding of the church on, at Pentecost, there's in the enthronement of Christ, there's a fulfillment that Christ, that David will have a descendant to reign on his throne. And in the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, this eschatological Israel of God is being gathered because the promise isn't just for them and, their, and for their children, but it's for all who are far off. So those are, obviously I didn't go through every text, but that just gives you a flavor of, of how I began to think about these things. And then as I keep, kept re reading my New Testament, I just kept seeing these things over and over again. And here's the thing, like a lot of times dispensational, so, so I see you, well, you're a replacement theologian then. You believe Israel's been replaced. I and, was gonna ask that question directly. Is that, would you call yourself no. that? No, I would say I'm, a fulfillment theologian, meaning even the promises to Israel in the Old Testament, and we can go to some of those too, and I think there's seeds of it even within those very promises, were there was also Gentiles being included in those uh, when they were given. You know, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ is not some a separate organism from Israel. It's the eschatological fulfillment of Israel. And that's why I think the promises of God can rightly and truthfully be applied to Christ and his church, because Christ is the true Israel. Christ is the true and better David. He recapitulated the history of Israel, even within that first few chapters of Matthew. Matthew is showing that this is the true Israel. This is the one who will be tested in the wilderness and he'll obey. This is the one who will obey unto death. This is the one who will go through the waters of judgment for his people and come out the other side, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, so, 
And because he's anointed with the Holy Spirit, he pours forth the Spirit on his people. And that itself is the inauguration of the eschatological ingathering of the people of God, like it talks about in so many prophetic passages in the Old Testament. One of the signs of the end of the latter days in the Old Testament was the gathering of Israel from among the nations and the restoring of Israel as a nation. But here, it seems that even though that is happening, uh, the truth, the true Messiah is being preached to Israel. Jews are believing in their Messiah. They are being gathered to him. It also includes Gentiles riding on the coattails of the Messiah too. So they're being gathered as one people. Uh, so that's, I know that was kind of a long way of explaining it, but that was just, that was some of what led me to this position. Yeah. Well, no, I, I appreciate that, uh, that clarity. Um, you know, there's <laughs> a lot there, uh, as you said, but, um, uh, I, I also know that, uh, uh, you are, you could have taken, uh, five times as long and still only scratch the surface maybe. So, uh, so I appreciate you being concise. Um, I have much to, uh, to say and push back on, but, um, before I do so, uh, I, uh, I will just state clearly, um, you haven't converted me yet. Uh, and, uh, but I, I want to know, uh, from, uh, Greg and Eric, if you guys have, um, like do, as, as Mike is kind of articulating this, are you finding yourself nodding in agreement and saying yes and amen? Or, or would you, would you have some nuanced difference from even within the, the millennial camp uh, your, yourself? Yeah, sorry. So while Michael was talking, I had a technical glitch. And so I'm not sure if how good my mic my mic quality will be. Um, yeah. So I would, um, I, I definitely don't have anything that I would push back against Micah on. I would like to do one quick thing, though, and, and, to, and give you a concrete example of of why I think Micah came to the conclusion, what, well, why I agree with Micah's conclusion. Um, if you look at Exodus chapter 19, uh, there is a, there's a promise there. Um, Exodus 19, uh, verses 3 through 6. Make sure I'm in the right, uh, right spot here. Yeah. Um, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you up on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people from all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And now, interestingly enough, um, those words, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, uh, we see those, um, we see that fulfilled in the New Testament, and we see it fulfilled two places. Um, one, you should recognize it out of the book of Revelation, where, where the Lamb is being praised for what he did. Um, but more specifically, um, in the book of First Peter, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, where Peter lays out, this is you. You were not a nation, now this is what you are. Um, and now I see that, so that, that verse in Exodus, or that passage in Exodus, um, as the prophetic statement of that, the confirmation of the fulfillment there. And that is only heaped upon all of the places where Paul talks about um, true who true israel is not all that are descendants of of abraham 
our our Israel. And interestingly, there's a place in First Corinthians uh, chapter ten, verse eighteen, where if you're using a modern translation of the Bible, it's going to say uh, the nation of Israel, or maybe if you're reading the ESV, the people of Israel. Um, now, Joe, you're the you're the Greek scholar here. If you read read the word nation or uh, or people, what Greek word would you expect to find? Maybe two. Ethnos would be my first, uh, my yeah, first ethnos or, or maybe genos, right? Um, mm. Genetic. So ethnos is the word we get ethnicity from and genos is, you know, genetics. Um, but that's not the word there. The word there is sarks, mm-hmm. um, a derivative of sarks. And, and so I think Mounts does a better job translating. He says Israel according to the flesh or fleshly Israel. And I think it is a consistently taught um, principle in the New Testament that there is spiritual Israel and there is fleshly Israel. Maybe we say uh, true Israel and, and fleshly Israel. And as we see in, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 45, where Jesus is named Israel, um, uh, making Micah's point that um, it's not a replacement. It is a true fulfillment and understanding of who is Israel. And now we have a problem, right? Because um, as 21st century Americans, uh, we see uh, very visible truths. We see truths that are apparent and obvious to us, as in there is a genetic nationalistic people called Israel. But then we run across the spiritual truth in the Bible that that not all those people are Israel. So we have a we have a, a, a physical Israel and we have a spiritual Israel. And we want to give priority to uh, the physical Israel. Unfortunately for us, as we come across this idea, the Bible gives priority to who is spiritual Israel. The spiritual truth is more important than the physical truth. Um, Those who belong to Christ, who are in the the one named Israel, is is more significant. Um, But we don't want to hold on to that truth when it comes to eschatology. So we, we, um, we cut off that spiritual truth from the fulfillment of the uh, promises. Well, and I want to add that to that, that that's not to exclude ethnic Israel from. Oh, absolutely not. No, it's, it's, I I would say that the promises are first to them. Like I, I would agree with that. They, the Christ, they, they started in Jerusalem. Christ was preached to them. Their Messiah was offered to them. Many of them did believe. So like, the church is built on the foundation of Jewish apostles and prophets. This, this eschatological building or people of God is Jewish in character. <laughs> it is. It, it's not. And so what happens is other, it's, it's not some other thing where God was like underhandedly sort of saying, well, I said one thing, but Oh, look over here. You know, this is how I'm actually, no, I, I think that it's a natural fulfillment of this because they were invited into it. <laughs> because they, and what happens is I um, came to them, you know, uh, and one of the one of the things I wanted to add about first Peter just really quick, because I'm preaching through it right now. and I'm really excited about it. Um, <laughs> not only does he refer to national promises here, you were chosen a priest, a uh, royal priesthood, choice, chosen race, holy nation, people for his own possession. Once you were not God's people. But now you are once you were not a people, but now you are God's people in chapter two. But right before that, he calls them the temple of God. Now, according to my former hermeneutic, I would have because of some of those Old Testament prophecies, I would have had to say, well, yeah, there's going to be a reinstituted temple in that kingdom with reinstituted memorial sacrifices and things like that. 
But the way Peter is talking here, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So who is included in this building or this fulfillment of, I mean, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is all about this, this future temple with the rivers of the water of life flowing out of it. Yeah. And and it's after the promises of the coming of the spirit, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Um, and I'll give you a new heart to obey my statutes. And then you see this eschatological building. But it seems that Peter here is saying that this building is Christ and his church, the new temple of God. And yes, there are sacrifices offered, just not literal memorial sacrifices in a literal future kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and what's what's funny is so yes and, and amen to all that. And again, I think where you have a spiritual truth of of a spiritual temple being the fulfillment of of what was given in the Old Testament. And then you go, oh, you're spiritualizing the text. No, I'm actually just, I'm just reading the text. And one place we see that most clearly, we can bring this conversation back to the book of Revelation, is Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 10 to the end of that chapter. Um, again, I'm not slinging mud here. Most people read that text and they go, ah, look, that city of God, that that's the... That's heaven. We're, we're seeing gates of pearl and streets of gold. And, you know, of course, we could always back up one verse, verse nine, where it starts. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, now hold on, listen carefully. Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he goes on to give a, a show. What is shown? Shown is a city. And you go, well, that, that, that's a city. We have to interpret that literally. Well, if you're going to interpret that as a city um, and, and not as a symbol representative of the church, you have to break your, your literal hermeneutic where the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride. Um, and, and so, again, another example of why I don't believe I'm spiritualizing the text. I believe the text is full of symbols and I'm supposed to interpret the symbols. Um, now here it's just, I think it's dead easy because he, he lays it out very clearly. This is what the symbol means. So now understand that symbol in light of the rest of scripture. Um, it's a little bit more difficult when, when, when it's not budged up next to each other, but even still we, we don't read verse nine and we just start at verse 10 and go, this has to be about heaven. Yeah. Well, so uh, again, I have uh, much to say, and Eric, it looks like you have some to say too. So I want to uh, bring you in and get your perspective. Um, but this, this I think is a great e example of, um, you know, kind of what we were talking about last time. And again, Mike, I know you weren't there for it, uh, but the, and anybody else who wasn't watching, just the idea of our systematics, um, how we prioritize the lens that we bring. And so, you know, Greg, as I sit here and I listen to you, um, I have no reason um in internally for me uh, to agree with your assertion that 
the Bible prioritizes spiritual Israel over national Israel. And it seemed like Micah at least had some clarification. Well, no, I mean, the, 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 the discussion of national Israel is, is very real. And so I would say, well, instead of prioritizing spiritual Israel over national Israel, if we give them both an equal footing and maintain the distinction, then we can come to very different conclusions of what you're saying. I also don't think that the Bible is, and I don't think you would believe this either, um, I don't think that the Bible is a book of riddles, that every time a symbol is used in one way, that that means that we then have to take that hermeneutic and apply it to every single place, because that is allegorical. That is spiritualizing the text. Um, I hear people all the time say, every time there's an olive tree, that is, uh, that's the Holy Spirit, or that's Israel, excuse me. Every time there's oil, that's the Holy Spirit. Every time there's a lampstand, that must be a church, because in, Re in the book of Revelation, the lampstands are the churches. Well, no, sometimes a lampstand is, is a lampstand, and sometimes oil is just oil. And so, you know, to, there, there are certain images that are used, um, but, you know, the, the, the context does matter. And, and I find no reason to say that in Revelation 19, when they talk about the, the bride uh, being the people, as we would take it, and then in Revelation uh, 21, as you're talking about in verse 9, talking about uh, the bride and, and describing a city, that we can allow those various contexts to, uh, to define themselves. And I don't have to go back and redefine and say that a city is a people or a people is a city, because which way do we go? Why do we take one verse and then say everything has to be read in light of this, this one thing? And so, um, you know, if if I agree with that presupposition, um, then we find ourselves in the, in agreement. If I if I don't, um, I have no reason. Uh, again, there's no verse in Scripture that says, um, "And thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt prioritize spiritual Israel over over national Israel." I would contend we ought to maintain those distinctions because the the cultists who knock on my door would say, "Well, here it says the Lord is one," and so if it says that um, you know the the Father's God that, that Jesus can't be because we have to read it through this lens or uh, the oneness Pentecostals would say that, you know, that the name of the Lord must be the name of Jesus. It's not the name of Yahweh or, or whatever. Like we come to all sorts of things that I think most of us on this call would, would disagree with um, because we would all reject those same presuppositions. And so um, I hear what you're saying. I don't, I just don't take that presupposition and I would want to maintain spiritual Israel, which I agree with. I think the Bible does talk about spiritual Israel. I do think that that is very important. They talk about that. Um, and, and if there was a priority, maybe that's for salvation, um, but as far as the purpose of God and bringing about his promises in the world, I do think that the distinction of national Israel, um, it doesn't go away. And while I think that the church is in some sense, the fulfillment of Israel, I do think the, the full fulfillment of God's purpose in Israel, um, is still future. And I think Romans nine, 10 and 11 make that case, uh, extremely clear. Um, but again, uh, um, you know, I'll leave it there for now. I just at least wanted to respond to that. Eric, uh, what, what about you? What, what thoughts do you have? Uh, looked like you had something to say. I don't know if the, the moment's passed or, or uh, um, let's, let's bring you in. You've been uh, very quiet over there. Well, I don't know that I disagreed with Micah on, on anything. I'm not totally sure um, exactly, but I, I'm fairly certain that we agreed on, on just about everything. Uh, he mentioned Acts chapter 2, which is one of the most important chapters when we're talking about um, the New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, particularly when it comes to quote unquote Israel. And uh, it seems like the first century church, they believed that Christ was reigning on the throne of David, not a literal chair in Jerusalem, but it was, it, it was in, a, in an authoritative position. Christ, after his resurrection, said that he had received all authority in heaven and on earth in other words, Christ has the maximum amount of authority he's reigning with right now. 
he he's not going to receive more authority when he returns. As a matter of fact, I would argue he's going to receive less, and we can talk about that later. But uh, but Christ has the supreme authority over over all, and uh, he's reigning from the throne of David right now. Um, that's an important thing to to consider in Acts chapter 15 and going along, Micah said there's a lot of other texts. This is one of the other texts um, that he, I'm sure he wanted to get to, but didn't. In Acts chapter 15, uh, this is the council of Jerusalem. They're discussing what to, what rules to impose on the Gentiles. And they're realizing that the Gentiles are being received uh, by God every bit as much as they are. They have equal status uh, in, in the kingdom of God. And it says um, in Acts fifteen fifteen, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Now, if you had read this verse from Amos 9 and you, you had just read it in Amos, you would have thought, well, this has to be fulfilled uh, in some literal, you know, literal situation later physical, on. Physical, temporal. Physical, yeah. But 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 Peter is saying, listen, this is fulfilled in the church. This is fulfilled by the church. This this is this has its fulfillment right now, uh, and it's of course that's it's it's a process that's been going on. But uh, again, this is talking about David's fallen tent, and yet where they're talking about really the church. Um, so there's, there's many other texts, uh, you know, that we could, we could use. So I would, um, I, I would, I would say this, that when we're talking about Israel's future. And I think um, Micah was, was right when he said um, replacement theology is not a helpful term. I think it's, I think it's misleading. And this might be the, the part where there might be some disagreement between Micah and uh, Greg and I, I'm not totally sure yet. I don't. They, I think they would have to explain what they mean by this, maybe a little bit more. But um, as I see it, I think that. Uh, do I think that that the church is Israel in a sense? Absolutely, yes. I think that's undeniably clear. Romans nine six. Not all who are Israel are Israel, um, and he he's he's talking about the believing remnant there. But then later on in Romans nine, he includes the Gentiles as part of Israel. Uh, and so there's so it, the church is absolutely Israel in a sense. Now the question is, does that mean that Israel has natural Israel has no future? There's there's nothing uh, in, in in the for the for Israel in the future, and that's where I'm not sure where these guys stand. So I don't want to speak for them, but I I believe that the most natural way to take Romans 11 is to assume that. Uh, as Paul says, they, the, the Jews have been, the natural Israel has been, they've been broken off of the olive tree. The olive tree represents multiple things. Christ, Christ is the new covenant. The new covenant's mentioned in pers- using personal pronouns in Isaiah. Um, it refers to the church because the body of Christ is the church. It refers to all those things. So natural Israel has been broken off of the olive tree because of unbelief. But, but Paul says, but they can be grafted in again because God's able to do that. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, and so all Israel will be saved. And I take I take that to have a future fulfillment and not a future fulfillment within a dispensational context, 
but simply that simply means that there will be there's a there's a time in the future when all Israel and that all can mean the majority it can mean a large part it doesn't have to mean every single Jew that's you know that's ever lived but it it can just simply mean a, there's going to be a large in gathering of Jews into the church so i want to make this distinction because this is this is what i want to emphasize the most about this that it's it's not as if the church here's the church and now uh, natural Israel has nothing to do with the story anymore. I think natural Israel will, uh, all Israel will be grafted back into the olive tree and become one, one body, one, one people with the church. So this, this whole, I think this distinction between natural Israel and the church and the, you know, they, they have no, um, you know, there, there's no plan to bring them together. They're just, they're always going to be separate. This is not what the Bible teaches. I think this is what I want to press press against maybe the most. Yeah. And I would like to hear the, these guys' uh, agreement on that because historically, um, you know, there there is a natural consequence that does come from replacement theology in particular, which I would reject completely outright, that becomes very anti-Semitic um, and, and actually begins to um, even potentially contribute to uh, arrogance against the Jews, which isn't anything new and is, is, is exactly what the Apostle Paul was writing against to Gentiles, that they not become arrogant against uh, the root because the, 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 that lump is holy. And in fact, as Gentiles, we are uh, participants in promises that were made to them. And so, um, uh, but do you guys view it that way? Or, cause again, there are many, again, historically, some of the reformers even had, had some, uh, anti-Semitic views that uh, I think should not be included uh, in, in our theology. Right. And it may surprise you to know, but, you know, I do not agree with Martin Luther about everything. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be careful. I almost did a spit take when you said that. <laughs> now will you say it about John Calvin too? I agree. I do not agree with John Calvin about everything. But what's funny is that as a Baptist, like Martin Luther probably would have been okay with me being executed and John Calvin at a minimum would have had me expelled. So no, like I have, I have very real disagreements and some of the historical developments are really, really unhelpful. Uh, but like, I'm trying to get to the kernel of truth underneath all that. Sorry. <laughs> did, you, did you find it? Was that the kernel of truth? <laughs> that was, being that was it. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the kernel of truth underneath all that that says there is one people of God, and that that's the people who are called the church in the New Testament, the assembly, the ecclesia, the people who have, you know, are rightful, rightful inheritors of these promises because they've trusted in the one who has been given the promises as his reward for his work. They've been united to him. He's the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate inheritor of these promises. They're not just to like just to an ethnic nation. Jesus is the ultimate inheritor of of all of the promises to Israel. And now, and this doesn't exclude ethnic Israel, but the, the people inherit all of those promises because they're united to him by his spirit. So um, no, I totally disagree with anti-Semitic stuff or to have any arrogance against the Jewish people. Um, but and I also want to note that just as Eric was saying in Romans chapter 11, there, there isn't two olive trees here. There's one olive tree. There's one people of God that some people are being grafted, grafted into, some people are being broken off of. And we can describe all, 
some some later date in the future, we can describe the soteriological implications of that as well. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as identifying who the people of God is, there's one olive tree. There's one people of God. And if the church is the people of God in the New Testament, which it seems that, you know, it seems that they are, the distinction in, in Romans 11 isn't between church and Israel. The distinction in Romans 11 is Jew and Gentile. And then they're both grafted into one body, uh, one olive tree in Christ, which I would say, again, maybe Joe would disagree, is the church. So, like, I just... Hopefully that's hopefully that's helpful. No, that is helpful, and I think actually that um, that might be the biggest area of agreement that at least I have with you, and maybe one of the reasons why I haven't um, meandered out of premillennial dispensationalism into amillennialism because I at least kept that as part of my foundation as I read all these texts as well. And so, um, you know, I wrote a, a a lengthy article series on the kingdom of God. Um, it was a, a very edifying study for me. It's, it's as long as a book, all the articles are for free on our website. Um, you know, and I'm not going to be able to touch on all those things, just like I know that you guys all have so many more passages that you could go to. Um, but doing the overarching, um, study on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God existed, um, prior even to God making a nation. Uh, the kingdom of God, God has always been ruling. So, you know, in some sense, Jesus being exalted to the right hand of the Father and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords um, is still just a continuation of God's overarching sovereignty that the whole earth is his and he has always reigned over it. He reigned over it from the very beginning. He sat as judge at the flood. Uh, he's, he's always been reigning over the king uh, as the king of all the nations. And of course, the nations have raged against that, which is still currently the situation that we find ourselves in. And so um, even as I listen to everything that you said, and I, I do want to, um, you know, kind of transition from that, that, you know, maybe position of agreement uh, into some of my um, criticisms or, or pushback for the things that you said, give you guys something to think about. And, and um, you know, again, uh, whether or not anybody's mind will be changed, I, I, I anticipate that we'll all continue to think about these things as we look at, at God's word. Um, but this idea that God is making a people for himself, that's the purpose of why he called Abraham. That's the purpose of why he made the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made these promises to them. He made this nation of Israel to be a, a witness to the nations. Micah, you stated it very well that, that the Gentiles were not excluded. They just had a, a, a way of being included. They could take circumcision upon themselves. And we find some Gentiles even in the lineage of the Messiah, right? Rahab is a, a Gentile from Jericho brought in. Uh, she's brought in uh, Ruth, a Moabitess, uh, someone who by law, was even potentially uh, prohibited from entering the assembly, but we see this gracious inclusion of, of these Gentiles into the very lineage of the Messiah himself, who's going to come as the promised king of all the nations. And so we see all of these promises. Then the church begins, the dispensation of the church or the church age, and is this a new thing? Did God uh, forget Israel? Did Israel fail? No, by no means. Those who were unbelieving, um, just like they did in the wilderness, they, if they, they were unbelieving, they perished in their unbelief. Now those who are believing, these are the people of God. And so we have God's purpose and election, um, and then God's actual saved people. Uh, and his purpose and election of calling the nation of Israel uh, is to bring about the fulfillment of all these promises. And so is Israel going to disappear? I think we all agree no, there is a there is still a future purpose for national Israel, and so 
I have never seen the church in Israel distinction as two peoples of God. There is always one people of God, and God has always been saving. Eric, I heard you preach on this uh, not too long ago. Nobody has ever been saved in any way other than by the grace of God through faith in God's promises. And so people in the Old Covenant and even before the Old Covenant, they were believing that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And then the Christ has come, and now we, after the the, the initial coming of Christ, we look back to what God has done, and, and we find our salvation in him. He is the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Those who believe that. For us as Gentiles, we're grafted into promises that weren't made to us. They were made to national Israel. And the author of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear that the covenant, the new covenant is not made with Gentiles. It's made with the house of Israel, which is why we must be grafted in. And so we can't replace those things. Um, I don't think that we are even the full fulfillment of that. I do think that the millennium um, and then really until we enter into the eschaton, that is when the ultimate fulfillment of these things will, will take place. And so as a result of that, you know, I do view scripture differently. I, I would not disagree with any of you guys. I know Greg, both you and Eric have uh, talked to me privately. I don't know that we've talked about it on this show, but you, we've talked about it in our discussions of these things that sometimes um, premillennial dispensationalists uh, would maybe even uh, deny or diminish the current reign of Christ. And I find that to be preposterous. Uh, yeah. Currently, of course, Christ is reigning. That's the name of this ministry that, that we're participating under is the exalted Christ. Uh, part of the, the, the reason this ministry began in the first place is to point people to the reality that Jesus Christ is exalted. That's part of what the scriptures pointed to. Not only that the Christ would come and suffer for our sins, not only that he would rise again, but that he would enter his glory. And so uh, Psalm 2 talks about that. In many ways, Psalm 2 and Daniel 7 both describe the current present life of our Lord more than anything we read in the Gospels because that was him in his humbled, humiliated state in the incarnation, and now he is glorified. Greg, it looks like you got something. Yeah, I, I'd just like to read a quote. And, and, you know, we talked about kind of the commercialized, sensationalized uh, dispensational premillennialism being different than, than sound kind of core dispensational premillennialism. And so I'd like to read a quote. Uh, this is from Paul Benoit. He's in, it, within the quote, he's going to quote Charles Ryrie, which um, if you are a dispensational premillennialist, Charles Ryrie is a staple for you. Uh, I've never so read any Charles Ryrie, just so you guys okay. know. Interesting. Like I, okay. So he, kind of the I think I've maybe read of, some quotes here and there, but none of my premillennial dispensationalist thoughts come from uh, intentionally uh, seeking out Charles Ryrie, um, which again is odd, I, I suppose, but uh, just, just so you know. Fair enough. So Benoit writes this. He says, Charles Ryrie has observed that the case presented by proponents of a present rule of Christ is, quote, rather uncertain and unconvincing because the key texts that are used are admittedly not clear. So according to these two authors, um, the key texts that, that make a case for the present rule and reign of Christ are not clear. Now, listen. Um, we've, we've touched on this. When Christ gives the, the Great Commission is based on, therefore, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go do this. Um, Amen. Ac according to the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of what? Of heaven? No, of the earth. Amen. Um, and so, so yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree leave, with that I'll fully. There. <laughs> I agree with that fully. And if we go back to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, I can't remember if it's chapter four or chapter five, um, but after he comes to his senses 
uh, he says that he, he sees that God's kingdom is over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's at a time historically when Nebuchadnezzar has left Jerusalem in ruins. The temple has been burned down. The, the walls have been destroyed. There is no quote unquote kingdom in Israel. And yet Nebuchadnezzar sees something that is not a spiritualized truth, is a, a genuine truth that um, has been not just in the new covenant, but in the old covenant, always been true. And so when we look at these Old Testament prophecies, which you guys have all brought up, that as we read them in the Old Testament, do seem to speak of a literal fulfillment on earth. Micah kept, he used the word obvious. I mean, we, we joked about it last time, but to him, as he read through the Old Testament, it's obvious. These statements um, in, in places uh, like in the Psalms or in the prophets that talk about this uh, reign on earth, uh, well, it is true that God is reigning, but, but read Psalm 2. It says that God has appointed his king. He's established him on his holy mountain. And yet all the kings of earth, they're in this foolish, futile rebellion. And that is the nature of the gospel call. We go into all the earth. Jesus does have all authority. Yeah. We're not so, going into the earth asking people, you know, will you please, please, please make Jesus Christ Lord of your life if it seems okay to you and you're okay with what he commands? We're going into all the earth to declare the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, and there is salvation in no one else. And so it is It is a political statement. It's a religious statement. It's a statement of historical uh, prophetic truth. But there does seem to me, everything that you guys have given, there seems no reason at all to distinguish the reality that there is still a future fulfillment in which all of these things will be, take place exactly as they've said. Uh, and and so, you know, I think sometimes we we want to make a, I'm not saying that you guys are doing this. It sounds to me that maybe you're doing this, but uh, again, I'm not accusing you. It's just as I'm listening to what you're saying, that sometimes we have this this desire to interpret God's promises as all being fulfilled within our lifetime. And it's why, you know, the, the end times fever, everybody's like, this is it. This is the signs. This is the signs. That. This is the signs. But I think we do it with the kingdom as well. Uh, we want to have uh, these, these truths that we're reading be fulfilled in our own day. And, and I would suggest, um, and, and again, you guys probably won't say that you disagree with this, but you know, like a guy like Joseph, he's about to die in Egypt. And he says, he, he doesn't think, well, God, you know, the promises of us being in the land, maybe that's spiritual. Maybe we're just supposed to make the best of it here. He says, no, bury me. But when we leave in the future, dig me up and take my bones with you because I want to be buried in the land of my fathers, this future land, this coming kingdom. And so nothing that you guys have said uh, about the current reign of Christ makes me go, yeah, I, dis I, don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I do in disagreement with Ryrie if he said it and whoever that other fellow is that you quoted. I, I, you know, I've never read that book. So um, do I think that it's unclear? I don't. I completely disagree with him. I think it's very clear that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I also think that there is a future fulfillment that is going to come when we won't see the whole world still in rebellion against him. Do you guys, do you, I mean, where are you getting your news from? Do you guys see the whole world in submission to the to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is everybody bowing the knees, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in your news feed? Because that's certainly not the news I'm reading. This, this so actually, think, this may be, go ahead, Micah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I've, I've dominated way more of this time than you have. You can. <laughs> okay. You've also well, somehow changed your background. I see we lost you in your back. So welcome back. Sorry we lost you. I teleported. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe this is a good time to, to, to transition into, uh, and I'm not trying to like force a transition here, but 
maybe this is a good time to transition into um, more New Testament texts and New Testament um, arguments for for uh, amillennialism as opposed to premillennialism. And I think you had mentioned, uh, Joe, the reign of Christ, and you had mentioned that yeah, he's reigning now, and and you're 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 more of a it seemed like to me more of a moderate um, dispensationalist. I mean, there's some hyper dispensationalists that that have this absurd idea that Christ hasn't reigned yet and his reign is, is yet future. Um, there's, yeah, I would, I would definitely, I would definitely disagree with anybody who says that. I just, I yeah, think that I there's know, a, I know you a better, more glorious, uh, uh, manifestation of that reign to come. Uh, in the millennials. Agree with that. So yeah. I agree with you too. That, that's what I wanted to, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting Greg or, or Eric. I mean, well, oh, well, let no, me, I, I, uh, let me just real, just, uh, just real quick. Let me finish a, finish my thought here. It only take an hour. Um, no, <laughs> but, but uh, I um, th- th- that's that's kind of what I want to touch on right right now is I think so. Th- the question is, what should we expect to happen when Christ returns? I think that's really what we need to nail down. What what when Christ returns? What are the events that are going to take place right after that? And how do we know that? So I think this is this is kind of the the, the part of this that I wanted to that I wanted to focus on um, because of the, the it's, there's a chronology here that I see scripture uh, giving. And I had, I had mentioned earlier and, uh, and Mike and Greg had mentioned this already too, that actually everybody did that uh, the new Testament teaches that Christ is reigning right now. Okay. And that. Um, did we lose Eric? We may have. Did you guys still hear him? I can't I hear him. Hmm. Hopefully he'll rejoin us. Um, this concludes part one of the One Accord podcast on eschatology. If you're enjoying the conversation and want to hear the remaining part, make sure you check out part two.